0: sharp,
1: pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Rolling back taxes, helping business, helping energy, rolling back regulations, that stuff is working, it's taking hold. And anybody who thinks this is a one-off, anybody who thinks this is just a 4% second quarter, please think again. And if we lower trade barriers, and give the United States a chance to export, we will do great because we're the most competitive economy in the world right now. We are killing it. And now, Stacey Washington.
2: Oh yeah, it's me. I'm back (laughs) and so excited. So I have been experiencing a little bit of stress over the course of this week because I was emceeing this fantastic Christian Bible study event today and after much prayer and preparation, it went off without a hitch. Uh, almost 200 women seated and having breakfast, and I was the MC. and the Lord worked. He worked. It was about the message, the message that God is intimately involved in our marriages, and that he wants to be the Lord over your marriage as well as your life, and that if you give that to him, if you say to him, it's three of us. It's my husband. It's me. It's you, God. We're going to do it your way. If you do the biblical plan for marriage, he will light your marriage on fire, and it will be an amazing testimony to what God has for us in marriage. Marriage is a gift, and it's, it's, it's a, a field of work as well. But when it's done God's way, oh, the blessings, oh, the magnificent things that God will do when you just say, you know what? My way is no good. Your way is best. Let me attend to your scriptures, attend to your will. Let me be obedient to you and watch how God will bless your marriage. So it's called Hidden Heart. Cry of the Hidden Heart is the name of the Bible study book. It's Hidden Heart Ministries. You can find it online. And you can order the materials, uh, including the DVDs, so that you can host a Bible study at your house or do a one-on-one study with a friend. And it's for the marriage that seems like it's perfect, which I've never seen one of those. Um, it's for the marriage that might be in trouble. It's for the single woman who wants to be prepared for when she's called to marriage, when her husband finds her. Um, it's even something that's so powerful and so full of the word of God that a college student who was skipping out on class and, you know, really gaining weight and out of contact with her parents was mentored by an older woman through the hidden heart Bible study not for marriage but so that she could find her way back to god and it, she experienced a miraculous transformation from doing that work that way so it's really it's it transcends all groups um it's for it's for women, but it really is what god does when when we say i don't i have a problem and instead of addressing this from the worldly perspective I'm going to see what the word of god says so Really great time this morning. I saw so many women that I hadn't seen in a while here in the local St. Louis area. Some of them I hadn't seen for five or six years. And so it was a nice time to reconnect. We had a great breakfast. We had speakers. And now I'm here with you. So what's on the show today? We are going to be speaking with Associate Professor of Philosophy at Pasadena City College, Edward Faser, about his book. Um it's it's so he's the book is about his conversion from atheism and how to prove the existence of God to people who claim atheism. So we're going to be talking to him. And then we also have um, just this whole idea that uh, Senator Claire McCaskill is now walking back her support of the Me Too movement, kind of trying to uh, specify how she can be supportive of the movement while still calling for due process. That's a very moderated, very middle-of-the-road type of a position to take interesting that she's taking it right now when she's up for re-election. So we'll have to see. We've definitely invited her on the program. We hope that she'll come on and talk to us a little bit about what she uh, hopes to achieve in her in her run for uh, first the Senate to be re-elected. Right now, I want to get into, and, and we're also going to be talking about this study, that half of all transgender female teens have attempted suicide. This is serious business. And one of the things that the world would like us to do is to say, well, they're just com- trying to commit suicide because they're not, being accepted. But that's not it. A lot of these teens have been given the hormones and are, you know, having the surgeries and everything and they're still attempting suicide. So it's not that they're not receiving what the world says. Oh yeah, just just validate them. There's another way. So we'll talk about that and a university opening what they call white awake spaces, safe spaces for white students. Oh, that doesn't sound like it's going to go that well. So right now I want to listen to the Home Depot co-founder. He founded Co-founded Home Depot. I mean, if you haven't been there, I have. Have you have? Are you living? Everyone's been to Home Depot at least once. And so you've got his, his name's Ken Langone, and he's got this message for President Obama, um, which I thought was pretty interesting because he's a business person. But he he's, he says he's outlasted um, Spitzer in New York, who tried to take him down. So he'll certainly outlast this round of politicians. It's number three. Oh, okay. Um, so when (laughs) we also will have on the show today, um, John Kerry, some audio from him talking about how it's a mistake to talk about impeachment. Now what's interesting about that is that when we look at what people on the left-hand side of the aisle are talking about during this season, it's really, it's, it's kind of like people who are double-minded of more than one brain. It's like on the one hand, everything that, Donald Trump is doing is horrible. It's awful. Um, It's just so ridiculous. But then when you look at the other side of what they're saying, it's, well, if anything is good, that's because of President Obama. So which is it? Is everything bad or are there good things that you need to attribute to President Obama? Either way, it doesn't make any sense and I I can't tolerate that. And the other thing I want to share from this morning so I was speaking with, uh, with a, a beautiful person who was there. She was talking about you know, how s- politics can be such a rough subject. And I was saying, yeah, you know, it, it's, if you're called to talk about it, it, it really is a, it's like drawing, drawing a bright mark over yourself and saying, I'm not going to be like, people aren't going to like you. And it, it really is kind of holding yourself up over the target for ridicule because there's always going to be someone who can disagree. And that's with any subject, but with politics, it's even more stark. And she was saying, you know, that she felt like someone was trying to help her, con- con- to help to convince her that she should vote for a candidate that she felt was pro-choice. And I was saying, you know, we 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 have that we have that option. Anyone can vote for any candidate. It's it's a personal decision. But as Christians, we know we have that extra layer of accountability. It's the it's really the only layer of accountability that that matters, which is are you voting according to the word of God? And on the abortion issue, the Bible is clear that abortion is not, that's not what God has for us. And so it, it's, it was interesting to speak to someone who was actually kind of weighing back and forth of this political candidate, yet she knew it was something that she didn't really want to be affiliated with and she felt that her friend was trying to kind of paper over the support of abortion from that candidate. And so I just say, you know, no, no specific candidate in mind, but what does God's word say about the issue? No matter what it is that you're voting on, you can check God's word and you can know that it's either okay or it's not okay. There's, there's an easy way to, uh, to figure that out. So I'm not sure. I, I'm hoping we have the audio ready now, perhaps let's listen to number three. Okay, well, um, so I want to, c- call lines are open, obviously. You can call into the show, 866-963-2037. And then I want to ask for, again, the listener stories. Remember, my boss, Will Addison, is looking for listener stories in preparation for October share So t- call in and talk about how the show uh, has perhaps been really, really great um, or something that you've learned from the show, any kind of testimonial at all. You just call in and leave a voicemail with your first name, the state you're calling from, and then share your story. It's 877-327-5647, 877-327-5647, and we'd be so excited to chat with you. And also, we have to be really, you know, rejoicing over the fact that the hurricane has been reduced down to a Category 1, and it's still going to dump huge amounts of rain And there will be some flooding and some damage, but certainly not a Category 4 elevating to a Cat 5, as was predicted. Praise God for answered prayer, because a lot of people were praying about that across the country, hoping for the best, especially for those who had to evacuate. So uh, now let's listen to Ken Langone. He's the Home Depot co-founder's message for Obama. He says, go off into the sunset.
3: Why don't you think the president is getting more uh, of the goodwill? From this good economy, from these good markets. Uh, and now there's been a battle back and forth between he and President Obama, who takes the credit for
0: this bull market oh, the
3: longest in history. Who does? Oh, 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 forget
0: about it. Obama ought to do what every other great president did go off into the sunset and be, my, my lane says, the, 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 the mother of the groom, wear beige and keep your mouth shut. <laughs> okay, what I'm saying is that, like it or not, Trump's base is rock solid. Donald Trump needs 15% of the voters to get reelected in 2020. That 35%, and everybody knows it, is rock solid. I, I, I would hope he would do things different than he does, but give the guy credit. The, the, the Koreans had that big parade. They didn't have an, uh, one of those Any, things. Long-range missiles, right. right. Uh, we had a meeting with him. I, I watched John Kerry on television this morning. Oh, we couldn't get a meeting with him. Trump got a meeting with him. What came of it? Well, we got three guys released. You don't think he's treated fairly? I'm not suggesting he's treated fairly. I'm suggesting he's getting... Th- I don't think he really cares about being treated fairly.
2: And So that's a great question. Does, does he care about being treated fairly? Well, if you read his Twitter feed, I think that it's pretty clear that President Trump does notice the differences. But does it stop him from going forward with his agenda? No, the answer to that is no. It, it actually seems to spur him on. He seems more invigorated by the fact that he's not getting the same kind of treatment that others are getting. He highlights it constantly, and it is a rallying cry for his supporters. And when Ken Langone talks about that rock-solid base of support that, he, that President Trump has, it's actually exacerbated. In other words, people aren't going to... People aren't going to drop the underdog, especially if the underdog is fighting for them. And so there's... there's a bunch of different avenues that that you can go down when you're thinking about that but ken langone actually took straight off into the Mueller investigation and what is going on there which he feels like is is it's just being drug out uh, it's number four
0: he told the american people well, what did he
3: you i mean in your days i mean every every action you would take in corporate corporate news on, i mean on. did you worry what the media was saying about you
0: no, because I knew the truth. How about what Spitzer tried to do to me, That's my buddy? Okay, he's gone. Bye, bye, Elliot. I'm still around. Right. Where's Elliot? Okay, you were one of the few to take him well, on. You know, but- you know, Neil. Let's understand something. We live in the greatest country on earth, and the American people spoke loud and clear. The establishment is shocked that Donald Trump won, but he won. He won fair and square. I don't, this Mueller investigation, come on, let, let's end it. Let's decide, come out and say what you got. There, there's, a, there's a notion here, this guy should not be president of the United States. I beg your pardon, he won fair and square, he won 307 electoral votes, he is our president. Respect the office of the president.
2: So, exactly, where do we fall on that, uh, you know, everyone has a right to their own position. I personally think we should offer the same kind of respect that was offered to President Obama. He was the president. You know, didn't vote for him, didn't agree with his agenda, but he was the president. We have to pray for those who are placed in authority over us and we have to have a an attitude of look, we know that we're going to have differences with any person who's placed in authority over us, but the Bible says that God turns the head of the leader whither or, you know, whatever direction He wants it to go in. And that includes for a leader that you don't like. All of them. And then you can vote differently next time. So when we get back, we're going to have Professor Edward Fieser and more Stacy on the right. Keep it here.
3: Hearing the messages from preborn, asking listeners to join together to help save babies' lives through ultrasound, and you're not sure how to respond. Here's the story of one woman who took that step.
2: I heard about Mission Preborn just before December of last year and asked my husband if we could give at least 140. Just last week, we received our packet. My husband came in the house and he was telling me this is our preborn packet, the ultrasounds. I started crying without even seeing them. Not only were there five babies, but one of the
0: moms was having twins. We were just elated for that.
3: For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds, and you'll receive a story and a picture of babies' lives that were spared. All gifts are tax-deductible, and 100% of your sponsorship goes to saving babies. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby, or go to preborn.com.
1: Hi, I'm Crawford LaRitz with The Legacy Moment. I love reading biographies. I've always been intrigued by the accomplishments of others, the motivations and forces that converged in their lives and caused them to make certain decisions or accomplish certain things. Some of the biographies I've read have been called the definitive work. In other words, very little, if anything else, can be added. This is all there is to say about this person or about his accomplishments. It's the last statement, the definitive work. Did you know God has written the definitive work? Nothing else can be added to what God has written, to what he's done. He's communicated his word in stereo, no, in surround sound to us. Listen to these powerful words from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here in this text, we see that the word of God was written, but God said, that's not enough. I want to send a visible demonstration of my word all lodged in one person, my son, the Lord Jesus. He is the visible fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Here's what I want you to remember today. God has written the definitive work. Nothing can be added to it or subtracted from it. And his son is the final statement. He is God. He is Lord. More information about the ministry of Crawford loritz can be found
0: online at LivingALegacy.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on
1: American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
2: Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for being here today. Happy Friday, Friday, Friday. It's the day before the weekend. (laughs) So we are happy to have you here, afr.net, urbanfamilytalk.com. Thanks for being with us today. Wonderful to be broadcasting from the heartland. So let's talk to our next guest. We have Edward Fieser. He's the Associate Professor of Philosophy at Pasadena City College and the author of the book, Five Proofs of the Existence of God. Professor, thank you for joining us today.
3: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Sure. So let's talk about this. First off, um, here in my notes it says that you were an atheist at one point, and now you're not. How did that happen? That's
3: right. How that happen? It's, it's a long story, but the short version is that I grew up, I grew up Catholic. I was, so I was raised religious, but I fell away in my teenage years. And I was an atheist for about 10 years, roughly the 1990s, um, from the end of my undergrad years through graduate school. But I gradually worked my way back through the study of philosophy and in particular studying the traditional arguments for God's existence given by people like Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, Leibniz, people like that. So it's philosophy that initially took me away from religion, but then eventually brought me back to it.
2: So when you say that you worked your way back, is it because you intentionally wanted to come back or were there things that just drew you back inherently outside of your own Uh, You know initiation.
3: Yeah. It wasn't because I initially wanted to. In fact, a big part of the story is that I was teaching um, undergraduate students um, late in my career in graduate school, and one of the things we covered in Introduction to Philosophy class was the traditional arguments for God's existence. And I was very critical of them, but it got boring teaching them to the students just by saying, well, here's the argument, and it's no good for this reason, and so forth. So I thought, well, I want to make it clear to the students why anybody would have ever believed these arguments. And so I tried to sort of play the role, as it were, in class of someone who believed in them and try to explain to the students what someone who did accept the arguments would say in defense of them. And so I got into the literature on these arguments and and saw what defenders of them had to say. And I gradually came to see that the criticisms that, that I and so many others had raised against them were not really good criticisms. And over the course of several years, I went from thinking that Oh, these are not good arguments to thinking. Actually, they're kind of interesting arguments. And ultimately to thinking, wow, these arguments are correct and I've been mistaken all these years.
2: Okay, so give us one of the arguments that you were able to prove definitively that was a part of that process.
3: Yeah, there are several arguments. Obviously, I talk about five of them in my book. That's why it's got that title. Um, And so to state just one of them in its very simplest form. Um, it's an argument that goes back to Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher who's writing you know, long before Christianity came around, 300 years plus before. And uh, uh, Aristotle argues that uh, the world of our experience is undergoing change, that change always involves going from potential to actual, but that this couldn't occur even for a moment unless there's something that changes other things without, change, without itself undergoing change, or to be slightly more technical that actualizes the entire world, keeps it going, keeps it in existence without itself being actualized. He calls this the prime mover of the world, the unmoved mover of the world, uh, which he identifies with, uh, with God. Mm-hmm. On Aristotle's view, the world couldn't keep going even for a moment if God weren't constantly keeping it going. So It's not just that God causes the world back at the Big Bang, but that he keeps it going here and now, and at any moment at which we're even talking about the subject.
2: Which echoes the Bible, which says that the entire universe exists at the will of Jesus Christ, you know, the yeah. word of his mouth specifically. Um, so yeah. how, could could you, so I think one of the things that, so you are one of my favorite people to listen to when I, when I listen to podcasts or listen to speaking events and I'm, I'm trying to find something that's intellectually stimulating. One of my favorite topics is to listen to people who were atheists. Who've, who've come to the true knowledge of Jesus Christ to listen to that process. And, but it can be kind of hard because I've not had a crisis of faith where I didn't believe in the existence of God. So for me, yeah. I, I find proofs and evidence within science and within nature and within philosophy, and they reinforce what I already believe, but I've never had that moment where I didn't believe and I needed to be convinced. So that's something that I don't have an understanding of. I want to understand it, Uh, so that's why I'm going to ask you the next question, which is, can you, can you explain that to people like myself who haven't ever had a crisis of really saying, I don't believe this anymore. How does it like, what is it like when you, you say you were raised in church, but then you were kind of like, this isn't for me. I don't believe this anymore. And then you eventually, you kind of proved yourself back into it really, because you were trying to prove the arguments. But can you, can you give us a peek into that?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good question, that's an interesting question. And I think part of what's going on is I mean, in my case, as with so many other young people, when you go to university and you're 18, 19, 20 years old, and you're encountering, encountering criticisms of religion for the first time, well you've already got that kind of adolescent rebellion thing going, and you're hearing things that you never heard before, you never heard growing up. And so that itself gives, you, gives, gives it kind of an attraction. And I'm sure that was part of the story in my own case, that the fact that a lot of these writers I was reading for the first time, whether it's Friedrich Nietzsche or Bertrand Russell or David Hume or these famous skeptical philosophers, um, the fact that what I was hearing, these criticisms of religion they were giving, were things I was hearing for the first time, and it seemed to go against what most people believed, or at least what I'd been brought up to believe, that gives it kind of an attraction, at least initially. Eventually you grow out of that, and you look at things from a more mature point of view, and not everybody who does so ends up becoming religious again. But if the circumstances are right, as they were for me, it did eventually lead back to that, but back to religion.
2: So, okay, you have the five arguments in the book. And I'm on the Amazon page. I'll put the link in for everybody. Um, if, you're, if you're listening on radio, and we're, that, the, that's the, the bulk of our audience is terrestrial radio. Um, and that's where our listeners are, are primarily located. We, yeah. I, I'm pointing them to my Facebook page Uh, where they can find the link to go directly to the book on Amazon. And I know, you know, Amazon's a great place to sell your book. For people who don't love Amazon, where else can they get your book?
3: Oh, yeah. Good question. Well, they can go to the publisher's website, and the publisher is Ignatius Press. And And they'll have to. Look what it
2: says. It says temporarily out of stock. This must be popular. Oh, yeah.
3: Good for you. Well, Yeah, well, I appreciate you calling attention to that. And that's another reason to go straight to the publisher, because they have to worry about it being out of stock in that case so that would be ignatius press i-i-g-n-a-t-i-u-s press.com i think that's the web address but they google ignatius press they'll find it they can order the book straight from the publisher
2: okay so back to the good stuff so um you have these five reasons now i know you don't want to give them all out on the on on the thing here but let's approach it from a different perspective let's say Let's say I, I encounter someone who is an atheist, but they're definitely open to at least t- discussing it, you know, so they're not a hardcore person who doesn't want to hear anything and they're interested in right. talking about it. How do how do you talk to a person like that? Sometimes it can be very frustrating because there's a sense that Christians are all, you know, bumbling, inept, uh, unscientific people who believe in imaginary things. But yeah. the truth is that as, as you well know, That everything in our known world and everything in the known universe points to not just an intelligent designer, but someone who is conscious of us and actively working things for our benefit and that all of the things that are going on on their own, they would fall apart at some point. They would not work as well as they have for as many years as they have. There has to be someone behind it, not something, but someone that is conscious of us and wants us to continue continue on, like wants us to to be alive and and continue to live on the planet and breathe air and stuff because everything is so finely tuned that a degree off here, you know, a temperature off there, anything completely throws everything out of whack and there's no life. So how do you talk to an atheist or how do you start that conversation if they're they're open to it? If they say, hey, you know, I'm an atheist. I, I don't believe what you believe and then they leave that dot, dot, dot. What do you say?
3: Yeah. Well, if, 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 if I am dealing with someone who's open-minded and intellectually honest, I mean, one opening point you might make is, is to point out that this idea that religion somehow rests entirely on emotion or rests on a, a, an act of faith that has no rational basis, that's actually a very eccentric and modern view. That's not the view that most philosophers, uh, including non-Christian philosophers, have taken historically. So whether we're talking about, you know, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim philosophers historically, or also pagan philosophers, philosophers like Aristotle and Plato and Plotinus and these guys who were around before Christianity ever came around, and so they weren't appealing to the Bible, all of these thinkers took the view that God's existence could be rationally demonstrated, that you didn't, you didn't require an appeal to Scripture or divine revelation. And so the real debate from their point of view was not whether or not to believe in God. They thought that could be established through philosophical proofs. The real question was, okay, should you go on from there and become a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or what have you? That's where the real action was, as it were, for them. And atheism was not even a serious option for most uh, thinkers historically, most of the great thinkers in the history of philosophy. And so part of what I want to do in the book is to reintroduce the modern reader to the arguments of these great thinkers of the past, including... Non-Christian, non-Jewish, non-Muslim thinkers like Aristotle and uh, Plotinus, and then sometimes when an atheist hears that, it's surprising, but then they're open to hearing, "Oh, what were what were these arguments they actually gave?" That's that's interesting. So that would be an, one opening move you could you could make.
2: Hmm. So I, now I want to move into kind of like the, the the bread and bread and butter stuff. So, do you feel like you experience more joy in your life, and that your life is is more? impactful or that you have a a, a happier existence now that you've returned to a life of faith? Or was it better before when you didn't have kind of the the worry of morality and all of that?
3: No, it was not. I wouldn't say it was better before. No, I would say it was better now. But what I, you know, one of the things I like to emphasize in the book is that, of course, there's much more to human life and much more to the religious life than the intellectual side than just, you know, giving philosophical arguments and uh, engaging in philosophical speculation and so forth. However, that is a big part of human life, because we are, unlike other animals, we have the ability to think, we have the ability to reason and to understand. And so one of the points I like to emphasize in this debate with atheists is that religion is every bit as rational an aspect of human life and satisfying to our intellects, to our minds, as it is to our emotions and so forth as any other part of human existence, as just as much as science is. And so I would say just, I mean, you know, in addition to whatever personal benefits that I might get from, from being religious, just as a philosopher, as a thinker, uh, in my view, the, the theological view of the world, the, world, the, the view that the world is sustained by, the, by God at every moment and so forth, is a rationally more satisfying um, and more comprehensible view of the world than atheism. Um, I think atheism ultimately is not really a coherent or rational view of the world. Um, so i would I would defend uh, religion um, first and foremost on the basis of its rational superiority.
2: I mean, it just makes so much more sense to me um, and and I think the further along we get, like when when I was a kid, I remember hearing uh, people kind of have these discussions where they would say, you know, there's so much that we don't know, even with the advances of science. But since then, just in that short span of time, we've made leaps and bounds of scientific knowledge and evidence that points to intelligent design. And we now can look at the tiny little machines that are currently at work in our blood cells, that little machines that clean up our blood. I mean, and when I say machines, like the, the... illustrations of them in action. You think to yourself, how could that be inside my blood cell? But then you have to think, how tiny is a blood cell? And this is what's going on all the time. So we don't control those little things. It's not like we have to sit up and think, okay, now I need my blood cells cleaned out. This is all going on completely apart from our thought processes. And to think that that could come from, you know, an amoeba a few billion years ago is just ludicrous. I I just I can't see it, but I know there are plenty of people who not only see it but really believe it, it, namely college professors all over the country who teach in the sciences who don't even allow for intelligent design in their answer sessions when, when they're asking the students questions about how this or that could be, all of the answers are evolution-based and there's only one correct answer, and it's always evolution.
3: Yeah, and there's this, there's this uh, error of supposing that scientific explanations and appeals to the existence of God are somehow in competition or incompatible with one another. And I think that's actually the reverse of the truth. So if you're giving a scientific explanation of some phenomenon, so suppose you say, okay, well, we can explain the origin of life and of species in terms of evolution. Of course, that leads you to ask, okay, but what explains the evolutionary process itself? Where does that come from? So the answer might be, well, we can trace that down to the operation of the principles of chemistry and trace that down to... Uh, basic physics and the basic laws of physics. But of course, the basic laws of physics, as every scientist would acknowledge, could have been otherwise. They didn't have to be the way they are. So why is the world governed by these laws of physics and not some others? No matter how far down you go, no matter how far down science takes things, it always only ever reaches something, the basic laws of physics. It didn't have to be the way they are. And so you still need to explain that. And that's where uh, theology enters the picture. That's where God enters the picture. The idea, as the German philosopher Leibniz put it, is that the world of our experience, all the laws of nature, the laws of physics, are ultimately contingent, meaning they didn't have to be the way they are. And the only ultimate explanation of why they exist, therefore, must lie in something that couldn't have been otherwise, that could not have not existed, what he calls a necessary being. And that's the core of the idea of God.
2: Wow. Okay, so I'm recommending that people read the book. (laughs) <laughs> because that's that's an amazing answer but I, it's just it's kind of hard because the the further into it I go I'm like I believe this already <laughs> you know what I mean I'm like yeah. I want to learn this but I kind of I, I totally believe this already um
3: yeah well I would say I mean belief in God is really the natural or default human position and you really have to argue yourself into atheism in my view rather than the other way around you have to come up with some pretty clever and I think ultimately really, you know, uh, kind of sophistry th- or fallacious reasoning to get mm-hmm. yourself seriously to doubt the existence of God. And so one of the themes of my book is to clear away that sort of intellectual rubbish that lies in the way of seeing what most human beings are just naturally inclined to see. Mm.
2: Perfect. Thank you. Uh, professor Edward Fieser, uh, Philosophy, Pasadena City College, fantastic. Ignatius.com is the website. We'll be right back with more.
4: A dear sister in the Lord, who is a writer for the AFA Journal, wrote an astonishing article about idols. In this article, she attests to the fact that if we are truly honest with ourselves, we will find things or people whom are more important in our lives than our relationship with God. Let's just say when I read this, I did my own soul searching and found a few. There are several passages in God's word where he tells us to not idolize things or people. Even the very first two commandments warns us about idolatry. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, John tells us to keep ourselves from idols idolatry is sin and it could be your career your marriage your car including yourself john piper says it best sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with god how do you get satisfied and excited about god refresh your memory of what the savior of the world did on the cross and ask the lord to help you make him number one in your life with a heart for the urban family i'm today's urban woman victory mcintosh connect with us more at urbanfamilytalk.com.
5: Here's Steve Tiber. Eight Days of Hope started after Hurricane Katrina, helping people in Bay St. Louis, Waveland, Mississippi, rebuild their homes back in 2005. Since then, this faith-based ministry has gone nationwide, and we've helped out dozens of cities, dozens of areas of the country after hurricanes, tornadoes, flooding, or even snowstorms. And now you get a chance to be a difference maker. Eight Days of Hope 16. You can be the hands and feet of Jesus down in Houston from October 13th to October 20th. You can come for as little as three days or stay all eight days. We provide the food and lodging. We're looking for skilled professionals and people like me who are less skilled and just want to give back. For more information, go to our website, 8daysofhope.com. Click on the event, 8 Days of Hope 16, read the FAQs, and learn more about how you can make a difference with 8 Days of Hope.
0: Learn more and sign up to be a part of 8 Days of Hope 16 in Houston, Texas at 8daysofhope.com. That's
1: 8daysofhope.com. securing america
2: some international airline travelers can leave their passports in their bags
4: and pose for a camera instead
5: please step forward look at the camera thank you very much
4: Facial recognition technology unveiled at Dulles International Airport takes a quick scan of faces and compares them to passport photos and other identifying images. Jeff Williams
2: with the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority says, "If there's not a match,
3: I would get an alert on this screen here that would show me that that person was not verified for boarding. So at that point, I can pull them aside and manually check their identification and verify if they're able to be on that flight."
2: Security experts say the technology will save passengers time as well as stop imposters, but privacy advocates are concerned. The American Civil Liberties Union has said facial recognition technology could be used for general, suspicionless surveillance systems. In Washington, Rachel Sutherland, Fox News.
0: Welcome back to Stacey on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk.
4: I I think that it is better for us to talk about the specifics of incidents and make sure that we are not such a rush to wrap it all up into a two-word hashtag that we forget important things like due process and that we forget important things like making sure that there's a system in place that everyone can be be heard fairly. Um, and most importantly, that the survivors have the support they need to make educated decisions about a way forward. I'm not proud of how I was handled. some of the things that happened to me. I was too afraid to come forward because I was ready my career. Um, and I'm not proud of that. I'm just being honest about it. So it, it's a question that's very hard for me to answer in, you know, just a kind uh, of two or three sentence paragraph. Um, but I would urge you to
2: look at my record in this
0: regard.
2: I'm really proud of it, and I think you will see um, my commitment by my record. I think Thank you to Wow. Okay. So that was Senator Claire McCaskill being asked some questions about um, the Me Too movement, and she says so she's uncomfortable with the lack of due process, but that she's been on the other side of it when she herself was sexually harassed. In her earlier days as a prosecutor and an attorney, and one thing that she really felt like you know um, i don 't know she she just felt like <laughs> she felt like she fell down on the job because she didn't press charges against the people that she says were in the wrong, and I think you know a lot of women have that in in their their history, but it doesn't really. It doesn't smooth over the fact that there's a, there's a lot more to it than that, right? There's, there's, there's more to it than just, hey, you've been accused and now you're guilty. So we've swung from one side where men were, you know, they were able to do what they wanted with impunity in some cases. Not all men, but in some cases because there was no mechanism for people to, uh, to, to file a complaint or, you know, women weren't believed so they didn't say anything. Now we've swung from that extreme to the other extreme, which is you only need to accuse someone and then you can destroy their career and their life and their livelihood and, you know, kind of run them out of, out of uh, town on a rail and that's it. There has to be some place in between that. And, and I think we find the answer in our current justice system, which is you're innocent until proven guilty. You have to be willing to come forward and face the person you're accusing. You have to bring the allegations in a timely fashion and I, all of these things are hard. And I know they're hard because I'm a woman. But I also know that if we if we tolerate just saying all you have to do is say like 100% of women have to be believed, then what about the woman uh, that accused the Duke lacrosse players and, and turns out that was nothing? What about the two guys who were run out of their colleges on a rail and had their reputations ruined only to find out that the girl who accused both of them did not actually tell the truth, and now she's being brought up on charges. But it, what? Where do those guys get their year of college back that was wasted fighting these allegations and the fact that they were expelled? How are their records cleared? We have to have the same system of justice that, and it's imperfect because people are in it, and there are always going to be, chan- you know, there's a chance that someone could be wrongly convicted, et cetera, et cetera. But the most important thing we can do is not lose sight of the fact that. The reason our justice system has has lasted as long as it has, the Anglo system, Anglo-Saxon system of government that we, that we have, system of, of jurisprudence that we have, the reason it's lasted so long and it's worked is because it has been evenly applied as much as possible. There have been mistakes, obviously, and that, that it has stood the test of time because of the importance that has been placed on innocent until proven guilty. Now, in today's super fast highway, super highway of information, instant notoriety, all of that, it's incumbent upon us to take a step back. And so you're not guilty just because, you know, uh, someone said that you're guilty. No, no, you're not. Not only are you not guilty, but you are innocent until proven guilty, innocent until proven guilty. That has to be what we want because it's just as easy for um, a woman to be accused of sexual harassment and to be taken down without any kind of proof as it is for a man. It's not going to happen as often, but again, as as I say when I'm talking about the Mueller investigation or the treatment of President Trump, who was then candidate Trump, or any of this stuff, look, you don't want to be in the position where you're falsely accused and have everyone— believing that false accusation instead of giving you the opportunity to be innocent until proven guilty as well. And and we all deserve that. And the reason that that's in our justice system is because previous to that in England, you know, Great Britain, the, the empire that was Great Britain, there were certain, you know, depending on what class you were, if you were a serf or a peasant or somebody who worked for other people um, or maybe you couldn't read and, and, you know, you couldn't write your name, then you could just get hauled off. It wasn't it wasn't like you got a court case. You didn't have defense. You know, you didn't have a, an attorney pleading your case. You just would show up before the magistrate and he'd say, you've been convicted of poaching before. Well, yes, I have. So now you're you're going for transport, which meant you were going to die. And that man could do that to you when you had no recourse. There was no appeal process, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how we came to this system of government because our founders did not want people being sent off to death or put into work camps or convicted simply because they were poor. We still don't have it perfect, but at least we have the rule of law that says everyone's innocent until proven guilty. It's incumbent upon the rest of us to operate within the court of public opinion and just refuse to believe every accusation that's lobbed out until it's been investigated. In this atmosphere, you can see where people might uh, maliciously lob accusations. And that brings me to Norm MacDonald. He, uh, he'd made a statement about this, and now everyone's saying he should lose his job. You know, he shouldn't be, he, you know, he, he's not a good person. Norm MacDonald, um, the actor, and he said he wouldn't be surprised to see someone commit suicide after these accusations because they're not given an opportunity to defend themselves. It's just, hey, you were accused. You're out of here. You're fired. You're nothing. You're, you know, get out of the public eye. I'm not talking about the accusations that were substantiated. I'm not talking about accusations that, you know, you've you've had people come out and provide proof. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this this notion that, your company is supposed to fire you and let you go to stop the the horrible backlash without even ta- considering the fact that you might be innocent. But if you're less Moonves, you get an investigation and a $136 million package and you get to kind of coast along. And then even if you are found guilty of whatever, you still got that $136 million. The, you see the double standard there? So that's not right. The college age boys who were accused should have had the same Ability to have an investigation without being expelled from school, as Les Moonves has. He's he's just chosen to step away. His career is pretty much over anyway. He's ready for retirement at any point he could retire. He's a wealthy man, but he's afforded all of this access and opportunity, and that you know he can defend himself. While two college boys, and they they just happened to be black, but they were innocent. I don't care what their ethnic background was. They were innocent, and they were run out of their college. Because of this accusation by this girl. You know, the other thing that I think is going to be super unpopular for me to say, but I I got, I got to say it to you. I got to. I, I have to tell you the truth. The fact is, a lot of this is promiscuity run amok. Where people are just giving in to whatever desire they have. And then afterwards, because you're you're basically opening yourself up to an intimate situation with a person of low moral character. And then when that person of low moral character then turns on you and accuses you of rape when it was really consensual, how can you be that surprised? The person is basically having an intimate relation with a stranger. So I will never blame the victim, but what I will say is an ounce of wisdom in these situations. In other words, just keep your pants on, keep them zipped up, keep your knees together, enjoy having, you know, friendships, hanging out, whatever. Don't go there. If more people would rein in those desires, we'd have less of an opportunity for people to say, I was harassed. You know, I, this was, this, this happened, that happened. They did this to me. How about you next time some person is offering you no questions asked free intimate relations, person you've never met before, sounds like a trap. Parents, talk to your kids about this. One of the most interesting things that I found as our kids have gone up into the, uh, you know, the, the high school years and as they've gotten to be more mature, is that if you have if you've spent time talking to your kids about common sense issues like this, like, you know, just running around having sexual relations with any stranger all that's going to do is bring you trouble and heartache that will last for decades, if not your entire life. When you talk to them like that and just, just be real, just tell them the truth, the stories from your own family, the stories from your own personal, you know, your own past, whatever you've got to use as true testimonials, just tell them instead of keeping it to yourself. The more you're willing to share, the more likely it is that they're willing to, first of all, believe you accept what you've said, And take it into consideration and allow it to be a part of what they know. Because you know how it is with kids. They can hear you say something and it can be something that they know you believe or that they know you want them to do. But if you want it to be a part of what they know, then you have to kind of, you have to take off the, you know, I'm your parent. I've never made a mistake before. I wear a robe of righteousness that is of my own making because I have never, ever, ever made a mistake. Throw that puppy off and just get real. Look, when I was a teenager, this is how I was and you know it was my fault that I just didn't have any sense and so the, here's here's what I reaped from sowing those seeds kids get that and they're much more likely to believe you and kind of make that internal decision well I kind of don't want to go that way now my parents kind of warn me about that that's just not it goes in it it takes root it's it's effective just like that's why they have testimonials at church because There's nothing more real than hearing someone tell you how they fell down 50 times and got back up that 51st time and they realized that, you know, God is real and he's got some saving grace for me that I need to grab hold of and lock onto it and never let it go. That is why testimonials are so real. So don't forget to (laughs) use your testimonial with your kids and tell them the truth. And so it doesn't mean they won't ever make any mistakes, but think of the heartache that can be avoided. If we just train our kids up to latch on to the word of God and to live for him and to kind of lay down our need to be perfect in the eyes of our kids and instead of that really demonstrate to them that, look, mistakes have consequences and I've made a few and here they are. And then once you've told them about that, you know, the, the, the word says we're supposed to speak about God's word in the morning when we rise up. In the noonday and as we go down for bed, we're supposed to continually meditate on God's word and we're supposed to keep the, his word on our mouths all the time uh, when, and keep the children with us as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, homeschooling, so my kids aren't with me all day, but I, I just know that the more often I talk to them about it, and I can see them sometimes, they're like, oh my goodness, mom, we know this stuff. And I know they do, but it's my job to make sure that I, I've drummed it in as much as possible, while still trying to be fun and upbeat and do like my little weird dances that I like to do that they're so embarrassed by. But I only do those in our kitchen, so nobody has to worry about ever seeing them except the kids. And they're I'm, I'm making, I'm, I'm making fun of myself. I'm having some fun with them, but I'm also sharing with them what God has for them to know that they need to hear from me. And so I want you, uh, you know. It, not every person who's listening to the show this is applicable to, but there's got to be some way that we can start to turn back the tide of what's going on with our children being so ready to, um, you know, just have these. It's it's just a, a laissez-faire attitude towards the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is our body, and what will allow another person, m- many times a stranger, to do if we don't talk to them about it. You better believe those Hardee's commercials are talking to them about it. They're letting that ketchup drip down and they're doing all, anything they can do to excite that impulse within your kids. It's our job to stop it. And the best cleaning mechanism is the word of God. It just comes in and it, it makes you wise. It says in the Bible that reading the word of God makes you wise. And it also says that it it divides off the garbage. It enables you to be able to to say, you know what, that's, you hear some false argument, you're like, that's garbage. We need that for our kids. Memorizing the scripture. And if you're a kind of person who thinks, well, I'm doing enough, I don't really feel like there's ever a time when we could do enough. We can never do enough. And I've been meaning to share this with you. If, you. if you are in a church where they have that little rack of pamphlets and you have this little pamphlet, it's called Scripture Confessions for Moms. It's kind of out of print. So when you order it, you have to order it from the manufacturer and then they print it up for you. It takes a few weeks to get. I would recommend getting it because it's an amazing resource of comprehensive prayers that you can pray over your kids. We're in a battle. This is a battle like nothing else I've ever seen in my life over the hearts and minds of our children, the arrows that we're supposed to be loosing out to go and hit the mark that has been laid out for them by Christ Jesus. And our primary weapon in this fight is the word of God and prayer. All right. You have a blessed afternoon, and uh, we'll be back with you on Monday. Have a great weekend.